This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, June 20th, 2021, given at the Church of the Messiah in Heflin, Alabama. The principal text of the sermon are selected verses from 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm not really a big sports fan. I lived in Tuscaloosa for 12 years, so I did have to learn about Alabama football while I lived there. But even though I don't like to watch sports, I do like it when there's some sort of tournament or game where there's a real underdog in play. And I like to watch and root for the underdog, right? It makes it more exciting. You don't know quite what's going to happen. Oftentimes when you have an underdog, you can't quite predict what they may do in the game to try to win. Psychologists have actually studied this. We as human beings like underdogs a bit more than the sure thing. It's exciting to us, right? Somehow we maybe identify with the underdog in a lot of our lives. We maybe aren't the winners every day. And so the scrappy upstart challenger is who we like to see in ourselves. Sometimes Rooting for the underdog helps manage our own disappointment. Like if we really want our team to win or we really want a certain outcome, if we cast ourselves as the underdog and that the odds are too great, it's a little bit less of a letdown when we don't get the result that we want. If the odds are stacked against us, it can make losing a bit easier. Sometimes we root for the underdog because of a concept called schadenfreude from the German, because only Germans can come up with words like that, which means a sort of odd enjoyment that we get in other people's disappointments. If we think about our, our country, we are a country built around the idea of the underdog, right? We have this ethos that you can be and do anything. If you are scrappy enough and work hard enough, you can rise to the top. And so we love these stories, whether it's in sports or of the, the young entrepreneur or the person struggling against all odds to achieve their dream. These sort of matchups, whether in sports or TV or movies, are called David and Goliath stories, right? It comes from this reading that we have from 1 Samuel today. David and Goliath is maybe the most well-known story that we tell about King David, and it's certainly one of the most detailed in the scriptures about David. It is a popular Sunday school story. I remember hearing it as a kid and loved to hear about the young, you know, kind of, I always thought smart aleck David, because I was sort of smart aleck as a kid, to coming up against the giant and winning. It helps kids sort of see their, their own power and faith on display when the giant Goliath is taken out by the diminutive David. 
But it's not just a difference in size that it's at play in this story, right? We oftentimes get so focused on that final moment of when David releases his stone and Goliath goes down. But our story steps us back, right? We see Goliath shows up on the field, not just as a giant person, but he is outfitted in every sort of military technology you could think of at that time. He's got a helmet. He's got chain mail, he's got armors on his legs, he's got a javelin, a spear, a sword, and he's even got somebody carrying a Goliath-sized shield going out in front of him. So Goliath isn't just a big man, he's basically a tank. And so when he comes out on the field and makes his challenge, King Saul and all of the Israel army stands there and are dismayed and afraid, and they don't send anybody out. We're left with this scene of these two great armies, the Philistines on one side on top of a hill, the Israelites on the other side on top of a hill, the giant Goliath coming down to stand in the valley to say, send me your champion, and this goes on for 40 days. The Philistines made their challenge through Goliath, but no one, including King Saul, was brave enough to go forward to answer it. King Saul's leadership up to this point has been passable. He's had some victories, but he's yet to get rid of the problem that he was made king for, which is namely the Philistines. And here we are. The best of what King Saul has to offer has led us to a stalemate, and Saul just does not have what is needed to meet the challenge. Now that's when our scrappy upstart David shows up, right? In the midst of his duties as the eighth son of Jesse of Bethlehem, David has been tending to the sheep and running errands for his father, and his father has sent him to the battlefield to take food to his brothers. And there on the front lines, he hears the challenge and insults from Goliath that day, and he hears the army men talking about that whoever defeats Goliath is going to get the ultimate reward of being free to being a free person, and their family would be free. And so David goes to Saul and says, Me, your servant, will go and fight that big guy. Now, a lot of times when we tell the story in Sunday school, we forget that Saul, once he accepts the offer, tries to outfit David with all the same technology that Goliath has, right? Saul tries to dress David in chain mail and put armor on him and puts a helmet on him and gives him a sword. And here is poor David, this young boy standing there weighed down by all of this and finally has to say, I can't move in this. Take this off of me. And so instead, he goes to meet the giant with more familiar tools the tools of a shepherd. He takes a staff. He takes his bag. He picks up five smooth river stones. And he takes his slingshot. David would meet the military might of Goliath with the simple tools of a shepherd boy. It is well and truly the best example of an underdog story that could be told. A few years ago, Malcolm Gladwell, an author, revisited the story of David and Goliath in a book. And in Gladwell's estimation of the story, he says that the things that make Goliath so intimidating are actually what makes Goliath so weak. And that what we think are David's weaknesses are really his strengths. Gladwell 
views Goliath in all of his armor as weighing him down, slowing his movements. Because of his height and his helmet, he can't actually see very well the field in front of him. For David, Gladwell points out that his refusal of this traditional military equipment allows him to be fast and nimble. David's size means that he's harder to see, and while we maybe think of a slingshot as a child's toy, a slingshot in the hands of a skilled shepherd can be as deadly as any firearm. And while the sling required David to get closer to Goliath, he couldn't just take him out from a distance, it didn't require him to get so close that Goliath would be able to grab him up or to use the sword or the javelin or the spear against him. Gladwell takes from this story a parable for the modern age, particularly for businesses, that they have to watch out for upstart companies, these so-called underdogs like David that maybe seem ill-equipped, that they're actually really better equipped with newer technology and more adaptable to the situation that's in front of them. It's their small size and their scrappiness that makes them a real threat to larger corporations that are weighed down by the responsibilities of employees and property and investments and profits. Now I think Malcolm Gladwell is right to ask us to reconsider this familiar story, but he really misses the mark of what's actually going on. David isn't the underdog, he's right on that, but he's wrong on the reason why David has the upper hand. For that, we have to go back to the text. David, in this text, gives two speeches, the first to Saul and the second to Goliath. And he begins his speech to King Saul with the words, Let no one's heart fail. David knows that Saul and the army are defeated already, but he tells them to not let their heart, their belief, their faith fail because David knows that the armies gathered there are the armies of the living God. And David knows that he can go and face Goliath and prevail because it is the Lord that has saved him before when he has fought off lions and bears while defending his sheep, and that it's going to be the Lord that will save him against Goliath. When David steps out on the field and speaks to Goliath, he steps on that field coming in the name of the Lord and states that he will defeat Goliath so that the world will know that there is a God in Israel. In his speeches, when we see the word Lord and that capital L and the sort of lowercase capitals that come after that, that is the writer telling us that when David says Lord, he is actually saying the very name of God. That's how close his relationship is. David knows the truth, that in that moment he is not the underdog because the Lord is the one that is going to act. He is not the underdog because it is God that is with him and that he doesn't need the armor or the weapons. All he needs is the gifts and skills given to him by God. So he offers those skills of a shepherd up and he offers his faith that God would lead him safely through what was to come. When we see this not just as a fantastical story about a boy facing a giant, but we see it as being a story about the power of God to lead God's people, then we know that Goliath never had a chance. 
So in spite of our tendency to root for the underdog, in spite of the fact that we call underdog stories the story of David and Goliath, this story is actually inviting us to recognize and follow the power of God. It is an invitation to see the power in the very simple foundational understanding that the Lord has saved once before and the Lord will save again. There is comfort and seeing yourself as an underdog or even as the champion. If you're the underdog, nobody's sad when you lose or when you fail. When you're presumed to be the winner, while the expectations may be higher, you have lots of other things that you can blame for when you fail. You didn't have the right sort of stuff. You didn't have enough technology or enough money or enough people. At this point in the life of the church, as we emerge from the pandemic, some of us probably feel a bit like David, right? Stepping out on the field, feeling like the underdog, seemingly outsized and under-equipped to what is going on in the world around us. Some of our churches maybe feel like the champion. They've bought all of this new technology. They are ready to be tele-evangelists on the internet and they are ready to go. But the story that we get this morning reveals to us that it is the, the real power of the church is not as in its size or in its fancy equipment. It's not even in our ability to be small and scrappy and nimble and switch to new technology. The power that is in the church is the same today as it was in David's day, which is the power to trust in God, to have faith in the living God that rebuked the storm and calmed the seas, to have faith in the living God that transformed the skills of a shepherd boy into the defeat of a giant, to have faith in the living God to offer ourselves and our communities up so that we can say to those around us, do not lose heart. The living God has saved us and will save us again. Amen.